It was a doomsday conversation and we wanted to have some good vibes. Well, I was pulled aside by one of our close community members and she proceeded to tell me what a traitor I was. How could I bring these people out? How could I have this conversation? How can you even think of going legal? You know, you're a traitor and we're going to run you out of town. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. That was Andalane Roy describing the first time she publicly acknowledged that she had been illegally cultivating weed all her life. As a second generation weed farmer, Adelaine proudly identifies as an outlaw, someone whose way of life defies the system. Born with a green thumb and a love of community, Andalane was running an 100 plant operation by the time she was 16. Despite this early entry, her path has been anything but straightforward. From being brainwashed by anti-drug propaganda in school to fighting against weed legalization, Andalane has always shared a complicated relationship with the law. Yet, rather than uproot her way of life, these challenges only deepened her love for Humboldt and the plant that binds its people together. Perhaps the reason why Andalane's love flourishes under pressure is because it originated under pressure. She grew up in an era where military choppers patrolled the air, officers raided houses, and even whispering the word weed got you in trouble. So could you tell me maybe some of like your earliest memories Yeah, growing up? So I was born in Honeydew on Paradise Ridge during the war on drugs in 1980. And one of my earliest memories was... Back in that time, you know, I was born of hippies and, and a free way of life. And so we were always naked. And I believe I was running around naked in the garden. And I didn't know what we were gardening, but it was the cannabis patch. I remember hearing this helicopter and it getting closer and closer and closer. And so close, actually, I could like feel it in my body and my bones. And then I hear this grown up running really quickly, so quick that like I got scared. And then and the helicopter was like booming loud. And I just remember my body being swept away and my soul was like still in the garden. It was super quick. So the grown up swoops me up. He goes bounding into the forest and the helicopter's like, woo, woo, woo. And I look up and it, like the dudes are hanging out with machine guns and bulletproof vests. And it was like a military helicopter. And there's like four guys, four machine guns. And then we go bounding into the forest and the guy's like holding me down and holding my mouth and, you know, giving me the be quiet treatment. And I can hear his heart pounding and I could feel and smell the fear. And, you know, these are unarmed families that that they're using military forces on for growing a plant. And that's one of my earliest memories. And I don't know if I was on our farm or if we had been um, raided because my family had to relocate to town and live with family and friends because when they did come, they kind of destroyed your lives. Yeah. So what, like in one of those raids, what would happen generally to the farm that they were raiding? 
They would cut down all the plants. They would break windows. They would slash tires. They would piss on clothes. They would spread feces. They would treat us like scum of the earth and point machine guns in our faces and in our children's faces. It was terrifying. Why do you think they were doing that? I think it was a control issue. The government couldn't control what we were doing. And, you know, my mom was a big protester of the Vietnam War, and she was in a protest in San Francisco and was beaten with a club. And that's kind of how she ended up migrating up to Humboldt County to live a peaceful way of life and live off the land and, you know, do regenerative farming. Well, we were lucky. Yeah, my family moved to town, but some families lost family members to prison for forever. Do you remember, like, what it was like to move from the the farm to, like, town? Or, like, what, what is the different dynamic between the farmers and the growers and the townspeople? Yeah, well, <laughs> so I don't really remember the move. I was too young, but my sister does. And she... She had a hard time living in the country because I think she was like 11. And, you know, it's like five miles down a dirt road. You drove on one yesterday and, you know, we were poor. Our cars are always breaking down. (laughs) It was dirty. And then, you know, being raised in town, it was a different community. It's like you didn't talk about what we did because, you know, you could get busted or go to jail. And, And then, you know, living in town and going through the D.A.R.E. program. So were your, was your family still cultivating cannabis while you lived in town? No, but my mother was still trimming to make a living. Ah, okay. Trimming is when, when you're processing the flowers. So basically manicuring the flowers, so giving it a haircut. And I remember still coming out and like going to the river and like getting to play in the garden and the countryside while my mom sat in a room for a really long time. But did you, did you necessarily know that that was what was going on at that point? No. No, my parents weren't really open or or talked about it. It was, you just, they just told me you don't talk about it ever. Yeah. And what I loved about is like what I was born out of was this sense of community, this way of life, and these core values of, you know, living peacefully and, and harmoniously. And I'm hoping, you know, I can continue that legacy that I was born into. But there were forces that educate it out of you. I guess, could you tell me your experience with the D.A.R.E. program? Yes. So drug abuse, resistance education, I still remember it. And of course it was like marijuana was bad and, you know, this terrible drug. And Do you remember like any of the imagery they used to say like, this is what marijuana would do to you or like any of the stories that they I, would tell? I remember role playing But what I really remember is like they instilled that we were supposed to tell on people and narc people out. And that was kind of just a, you know, a code here. It's like, you don't do that. But I did end up going home and narking my sister out. Oh, what? (laughs) I did. I was like, I go, mom, dad, are Yana smoking pot? And they're like, we know. And then (laughs) and then that's the first time my parents had the conversation with me about cannabis and how they felt about it. So at that point, you were convinced by the D.A.R.E. program. Yeah. You're like, okay, like this is They evil. totally brainwashed me. Wow. <laughs> what do you think was so convincing about it? I mean, you know, you have like this officer in the uniform and all the kids are listening and it was something different. And, and it was like, it was really hard to know what was right or what was wrong. But my parents did a good job explaining it. And 
you know, their beliefs was it was medicine and it could heal you. And, you know, it really, it really can. And I, I learned that later on in life. For so long, because of the social pressure and because it was not socially accepted or legal and, and there just, you know, wasn't studies behind it, it was hard to know if it was right or if it was wrong. Yeah, I'm sure. And so as I guess you sorted out your thoughts about that, when did you start smoking yourself or, or participating in cannabis culture? Because you also started trimming eventually, like 1996-ish. I did. So my sister, who I ratted out, it was three years later, she was like, let's go hang out with my friends. And they were they were growing cannabis. And, you know, I got to hang out with her friends and they all kind of explained why they like cannabis, why they smoke cannabis. And they passed me the joint for the first time. I got high for the first time and it was an amazing experience. We laughed the whole time. We watched movies. We made food. It was, it was a really good time. And, and from then on, I was kind of, I don't want to say hooked, <laughs> but I was, you know, like I was a supporter of cannabis because I felt it like enhanced happiness and well-being. How did you start uh, entering in from like, I guess, a recreational user to someone who was actually inside the operation and maybe following in your, your you know, your mother's and your, your, your parents' footsteps. Yeah, so that was probably, you know, when I hit my teenage years or just before, so maybe 14, 15, my friends and I were like, this, this is amazing, like, let's grow some plants. And I always gardened with my mom. We always grew our own food. So we got some starts from a friend and... Starts are like seeds? Are, are little babies. Okay. So yeah, from a friend and basically clones. So I think we had like a hundred so that was your first gorilla grow, yep. which is like, you know what they call it when you're planting it in the, in the forest. So how did you get started trimming? It was usually word of mouth at that time. And I think my first job was in West Haven, trimming for some friends. And I, and I did that for years, every time they had a harvest. And what was that uh, like process like? How much were you getting paid and all that? Then I can't even remember, but for the longest time, it was $200 a pound. Whew. And if you were fast, you, you know, trimmed three to five pounds a day. I was always like the three pound a day or like, like okay, one to three, depending on the quality. At 16 to, and it's what, this is in 96. So at 16 to do three pounds in a day and get it's $600. $600. Yeah. That's really, really good money. What I kind of remember was like, it would be a trim party and friends and family would gather for the harvest. You know, th there would be food and there might've been a money exchange, but it was more of a like help thy neighbor type feeling. I can't imagine it now. It's a warm autumn evening. Friends are gathering around a table, steaming with food. Laughter breaks out as the sun sinks beneath the mountains. And amidst all this activity, a joint's being passed from hand to hand. As Andalane immersed herself in weed culture, she experienced a different side of the plant that police never told her about. A side that healed, that bonded people and enhanced her joy for life. I think it was in these moments that Andalane began to understand what the term outlaw meant. Just because her lifestyle and beliefs clashed with the law didn't mean that she couldn't take pride in it. 
didn't mean that it was dangerous or shameful. Like the other growers in her community, she just wanted to live off the land, share the benefits of weed with the world, and sure, get high every once in a while. Andalane's love for cultivation meant that she would always be tied to her community at Humboldt, but it actually wouldn't be until she left home for the first time that she discovered that this was core to her identity. What we've kind of described so far is you have what Humboldt is saying is okay, right? You are allowed to like, you know, plant or kind of, you know, you're allowed to like trim, you're allowed to plant uh, weed in the forest kind of. But if you look at a, you know, federal level, if you look at the U.S. as a whole, I, I would I would love uh, with that context to tell me uh, how you viewed yourself and the operation and the difference between an outlaw and a criminal in your mind. Yeah. So, I mean, in my mind, a criminal is dangerous. Somebody that hurts others or does terrible things to their benefit that's harmful to society and others. I was growing a plant with my peaceful, loving, wonderful community. And it was a plant that helped people and made people happy. I love the term outlaw because we weren't criminals, we're not dangerous, we were out of law. There was no path to legally cultivate cannabis, so we were outlaws. So you were trimming a little bit and eventually you near the end of high school, how are you thinking about your future at that point of thinking about college? My grandparents were amazing, wonderful people, and they gave me a scholarship to college. And I went for a while in Humboldt County, but I don't think, you know, I was kind of stuck in the way of my friends and, and smoking and not making the best choices. I was still getting good grades. And my grandparents were like, please come to L.A. and go to college. And I was like, you know, it'd probably be good to get outside of Humboldt and see what the world's like. So I moved to L.A. and went to college and I was just incredibly homesick the whole time. What do you think was missing from L.A.? The trees, that sense of community, that sense of like tight knit community, the garden. In L.A. there's smog and acid rain. And I remember the first time I got to L.A. and I was like, oh, it's finally raining. And I like stuck my tongue out to taste the rain and it was tasted like car exhaust. And I was like, I can't have a garden here. And just like the disconnect between water use and how much garbage you produce and not many people recycled. And there was, it, I was just incredibly homesick. And, and I felt like my core values that I learned from my family and my community around, you know, sustainable practices and gardening and it was just missing. And, and I had a huge hole in my heart. I think like the disconnect. I think is is a really big one because you're so connected to your food here. You're so connected to nature and in LA that's kind of hidden away. You know, you don't know where your food comes from and you don't know where your trash goes. And, and you don't know where your water comes from. No, no. And I think that gives you a much more cavalier attitude towards nature and a loss of respect for it too. And I imagine that's probably a lot of what you were feeling. So if you wanted to... I mean, obviously you're very passionate about like agriculture and regenerative agriculture. Um, why did you decide to study child development over something like agriculture or like even maybe you know, city planning or urban planning or, 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 or something closer to what it seems like your life had been leading towards up to this point? Yeah, I think a part of it was, you know, I'm a nurturer. I want to take care of people. 
And I also knew that that was the next generation. And if I wanted to pass the core values that I was raised with on, I wanted to do it to the next generation and be a teacher. So after you're finishing, what is your plan? Like, what do you want to do? As soon as I graduated college, I came back home and looked for a job in teaching. I was also chasing a boy. Can you tell me about uh, <laughs> chasing that boy? <laughs> yeah, he's my husband now. <laughs> <laughs> no spoilers. <laughs> so yeah, how did you first lay eyes on this boy that you were chasing? We were kind of raised together as well. So my nanny and, and godmother was his stepmother. So we knew each other when we were younger. And then over the years, she kept introducing us. So she introduced us like around 12 or 14. And then she introduced us again around 16, 18. And we like briefly hung out. And then my best friend started dating his brother. And and that's and I kept driving home to get a glimpse of the boy I had a crush on. Ah, so it was a little homesickness and a little love interest. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> a little bit of both. When did you guys like like were you guys doing anything together? Were like was there any like a cannabis cultivation together? Like what were you guys bonding over? I had to chase my husband for like a year and a half <laughs> before he took me on a date. We were at his mom's house because my girlfriend and his brother were li were living there. And we invited Prem to dinner and he finally showed up. And we were just like hanging out and my girlfriend Shannon was really tired of hearing, hearing about it. So <laughs> she took Prem aside and she was like, if you don't take my friend home tonight, I'm gonna like be really mad at you. So he asked me to come to his house and I never left. That was in Honeydew. Honeydew, where all relationships should start. <laughs> yeah, I know. And there's just this magnetic pull for me for this spot. Honeydew is so beautiful and majestic. And I've just, I was born here and I was, my, my heart and soul was never able to leave. I have like a deep connection with this place in, in the way of life. Imagine the intense love someone must have for a place to drive 12 hours every weekend just to see it. If that's not evidence that Humboldt was Andalane's heart and soul, I don't know what is. Interestingly, something that all of our guests in the cannabis series have in common is their love for Humboldt. No matter how far and wide they've traveled, whether that's to South America, Europe, or the East Coast, they all echo the sentiment that there's no place like home. To Andalane, L.A. was the complete opposite of home, a concrete jungle where people's disinterest in the origin of their food and water was as palpable as the smog in the air, a place where waste wasn't seen as wasteful and conservation happened on a conservative scale. Having been raised to treat the land with as much respect as she would treat people, it was no wonder L.A. felt like an alien country. Just as community and environmentalism nurtured her love for Humboldt, so now it was calling her back. In 2004-ish is when you started to get more into growing. You were also teaching at that point too. So tell me how you got more into growing. Well, my husband was born and raised in Honeydew and he's a second generation farmer. And his father was part of that generation that brought seeds. He was born into the way of life and was able to continue living out here with his family cultivating cannabis. We started dating and I was teaching preschool and living in town and coming out on the weekends. And so whenever a harvest was in, I was processing to make a little extra money because preschool teachers don't make enough money. How much were you making? I was making like $800 a month. A month? Yeah. I was like basically kind of sleeping on friends' couches and could barely make my car payment. 
And when you were trimming, how much you were making? $800 in a weekend. That's a big difference. Yeah. That's some big supplemental income. Yeah. So did that, the attractive force of the money you were making trimming, did that change your outlook on what you, like where you should be spending your time or where you thought you should be spending your time? It possibly influenced it, but it was more the way of life, the community and the place and and like the land and living here and experiencing the beauty and, and being able to like get my hands in the dirt. And I loved gardening with my husband. I just truly loved cultivating. I loved everything about it from, from start to finish. Is there a point where you remember making that choice? Eventually, it seems like you're going to have to choose to move towards one or the other. Yeah, it was when I woke up at 6 a.m. to drive to town to my to my teaching job. And it was one of the most beautiful sunrises I've ever seen. And it came to me. I was like, this is what I want. This is where I want to be. This is the life that I want. This is the man that I want. And I knew that like I had found my person and I had kind of found my calling and, and the life that I wanted to live. So 2006 is when you quit. Yeah, 2006. My husband at the time didn't own property, but he desperately wanted property. The first property he bought was this one. We were buying 40 acres and he was saving every dime he had to do it. And finally, Prem was a property owner in Honeydew near his family. You get this property. Are you at all like worried as you're scaling up your involvement of the law? Yeah. I mean, there was helicopters flying all the time. We'd be hiding in the bushes. You know, we still have PTSD from it. I still, you know, I hear a helicopter and I'm still like, should I run? I get this fight flight and my heart starts pounding. Sometimes it was very stressful. These moments of hiding in the bushes and feeling the thrum of the chopper reverberate in her bones, it parallels the turbulence of Annalene's childhood. Most people might have saved themselves a trauma and tried a more law-abiding path, but not Annalene. As we've seen time and time again, challenges don't deter her love for weed and love for Humboldt. They strengthen it. When comparing her childhood with her adulthood, it feels as if not much has changed. Officers still terrorize the countryside, and people are just as frightened as they were 20 years ago. But to say weed was just as stigmatized as before isn't exactly true. After the initial years of the war on drugs, weed culture slowly but steadily began to gain rapport among the general population. The Compassionate Use Act of 1996 had already legalized marijuana for medical purposes. That year, support for market-wide legalization reached 25%. By the time Andalyn had quit teaching to focus on cultivating her own business, support had climbed 40%. As encouraging as those numbers sounded to the outlaws of Humboldt, they were equally distressing. How might legalization affect small farmers or their community values? Andalyn was about to find out. So before we bought our first property, we were living in a cabin on Prem's father's property. Prem had built a porch and it had a view of the valley camp, the campaign against marijuana planting that was funded by the federal government, military helicopters and machine guns against U.S. citizens to eradicate marijuana grows. 
they had stationed on this meadow across the valley. They would like set up military tents and have their trucks and weed whackers and quads and they would park a couple helicopters there. We were always just like, where are they flying now? And we, we had walkie-talkies to communicate with each other and tell, tell each other what driveway they'd pull off. And if they pulled off your driveway, you'd have to go hide in the woods or, or get off your property. Um, it was terrifying. How does evading that change when you own the property? Because like now your names are attached to whatever you're growing on your property. So in 1996, Prop 215 had passed and that was for medical marijuana. I went to the doctor. I was like, I have really bad cramps. So I got a prescription to grow 99 plants. And then I had a few friends who had prescriptions. So at that time, we we were putting those on our greenhouses. Because if it was covered, camp or the law couldn't see it, they couldn't get a search warrant. You know, we weren't trying to be millionaires. We were just trying to live our way of life and grow enough to pay our mortgage and put food on the table and raise a family and make a living. Late 90s early 2000s was kind of the first green rush with with the 215 and medical marijuana. So I would say Humboldt County was kind of blowing up at that at that time. And there were people that were, you know, not stewards of the land, bulldozing, and those were the bad players of the industry. I would say between that time, you know, Prem and I were building a business. We had employees that we were treating well. We were we started standard operating procedures. And, you know, it was really important for Prem and I to create a safe space because there were bad players in the industry. Being a woman in this business, do you think you had a different experience maybe than Prem? And if so, like, how did that manifest? I didn't experience that until we became a legal business and I had to start working with other industries like lawyers and the planning department. I had friends that experienced that. So, um, you know, they would date a man for years and years, help him build the business, and then, you know, they would break up and something would happen. And then I had a few girlfriends that were kind of left with nothing. And that was kind of a typical misogynistic sad story that would happen. In an outlaw industry, there were no rights as an employee or working with a partner. Um, there's no paperwork there, you know, so you're just kind of out of options. Yeah. As 2015 is approaching and you're seeing legislation move towards recreational legalization and it's much more complicated. Can you tell me about how you were processing this incoming legislation and what you were thinking about it? So I got a call from my sister and she's like, you got to start paying attention. And I was like, to what? <laughs> so then I, I joined this organization called CCVH, which was California Cannabis Voice Humboldt. And they wrote the first ordinance that Humboldt County adopted. Humboldt County was the first county in California to regulate and adopt an ordinance to, to regulate cannabis. Um, I was part of the events committee and what we were doing was trying to go out to all the watersheds and contact all the farmers. Now, we're trying to contact farmers, you know, who barely have phone service. They don't have internet. They don't email and, and try to educate them that like, hey, Prop 64, legalization of marijuana is, is, is coming. 
um, you guys need to prepare for it. And so it's kind of like an education and an outreach of like our way of life is on the line. I knew our way of life was threatened and going to change drastically. And I was I was scared. And a lot of the old timers and back to the landers had kind of built a mistrust of the government. They, they kind of didn't believe in the system anymore and, and were kind of protesting against that by by living out here. Andalyn anticipated Prop 64 the way someone might wait for the coming of a storm with bated breath and eyes constantly fixed on the horizon. The consequences of legalization were about to fall and in order for the community to remain intact, they had to act fast. But decades of persecution and being treated like criminals had created a wide chasm of mistrust between the farmers and the government. How can the same people who'd sent men with guns to terrorize their children now claim they're helping them? It just didn't make sense. Enemies don't suddenly become friends overnight. Recognizing that doomsday was inevitable regardless of whether the community believed in it or not, Andalane began to do what anyone anticipating a storm would. She began to organize her resources and fight for survival. My sister, Sequoia, was on the board of the directors for CCVH, also Tara Carver, who was the founder and executive director for HCGA, and my little brother. So this group organized to help the county write an ordinance that would regulate cannabis in a way that worked for farmers. Because here's the county and the Board of Supervisors wanting to regulate cannabis, but they don't know anything about us. They don't know how our businesses operate. So this group formed to basically tell them how it operates and going out and talking to farmers who have been fighting the law and outside of law and outlaws and thriving in it really didn't want to hear it. Yeah, I mean, because everyone's making a ton of money right now, right? Like this is known as like the golden years of cannabis. Our county was thriving too. There isn't really another industry that brings in money. How much were people making? Millions. Millions. Yeah. Wow. Some, the the big players. These farmers don't feel like there's a reason to change. So can you tell me like a conversation that you had? So I was worried about my community and I wanted them, my friends and family, I wanted them to know what was coming. And it was kind of like, it's coming and there's nothing we can do about it. So educate yourself, prepare, save money, like start conserving. So I hosted a meeting at my property. And CCBH, the executive directors came out and kind of gave their spiel to the community members that showed up. I think there was like 25 or 30 people. And I had it catered and I got kegs and, you know, because it's like we're all about community and food and and good times. And it was a doomsday conversation and we wanted to have some good vibes. Well, I was pulled aside by one of our close community members and she proceeded to tell me what a traitor I was. How could I bring these people out? How could I have this conversation? How can you even think of going legal? You know, you're a traitor and we're going to run you out of town. Right. Because there's this, I mean, a culture of not talking to the law. There's a code, a strict code. And this was writing the thin line. But I guess I had the forethought and I could see what was coming, that this was going to be detrimental to our community. A lot of community members felt this conversation was unsafe because there was a mistrust of the government. And 2015, 
began like the most stress of my life and going compliant in the fear that like we could go to prison and lose our children because Prem and I had children at this time and you know it's like you put your name down and say you're a pre-existing cultivation company what is California going to do what is the federal government going to do because essentially what you're saying you were doing something illegal it was absolutely terrifying we were admitting that we had been out of law the whole time it was absolutely terrifying so her fear and reaction was completely understandable we didn't know what was going to happen and there was a huge mistrust in the government because they had been pointing machine guns in our faces there was still a lot of outreach that needed to happen there's so many unanswered questions when it actually passes what are your feelings around that? Yeah, I mean, I would say there was like 50% of the community wanted legalization. I wanted to be a valued member of society and, and be able to function as a regular business owner. So having kids, you know, there is a big fear. If you were busted, sometimes they would take your kids away if you had your kids on the property or near the plant. I, I jumped at the opportunity to become a legal business. I was very excited about it. Right, because you didn't want to keep looking over your shoulder for the rest of your life. Yeah. So I became very active in organizations that were trying to do legislature and also active in just trying to educate the community and trying to educate myself to know what was coming down the line. Either way, I didn't think it would be good, but I thought going legal and and becoming compliant was a better choice than to not to. When it went through, was it everything that the growers wanted? Absolutely not. There's no rainbows and sunshines about this story. It's, It's been really challenging. And I don't think it's just been challenging for the cultivators. It's been challenging for everybody trying to catch up. And what were some of the things that you had to navigate? So the California Growers Association formed, and that was for cannabis cultivators all over California. I don't think that organization, and and I don't think we realized what a huge gap there was between indoor cultivation and sun-grown cultivation. They're completely different crop. The rules are ever-changing all the time. So the amount of work and and effort that you had to put in to knowing the rules and staying in compliance and keeping up with all the changes, it it was like a different industry every year. A good example of that is first we had SIPCA for track and trace, and that was like a county metric system. So we sign up, we pay the money, we hire consultants, I hire a staff member to get trained in that program. Well, that dissolved. So all that time and money spent on consultants and hiring the staff, all of a sudden it's gone. Thousands of dollars. Then there's the California track and trace metric. We'll have 1,500, 2,000 clones. And that's like ever changing, but we have to tag each individual plant. So you can have one package tag for 100 clones, cuttings, or babies. 
but each plant has to have the tag number. So we either have to like go into the computer, put the number on the stickers, and then, you know, somehow sticker each individual plant. And it's taking away from the cultivation and ensuring that we're successful in growing a good product. And it's just very tedious and not realistic for the way we grow now. Especially for outdoor grows. A lot of the regulations are based off of indoor grows and it's not for sun-grown or small family farms. How do you think that changes the landscape of like cannabis cultivation? Does it move more people towards indoor grows? Does it make it just harder to sustain outdoor growing operation? They're giving impossible regulations to follow. And it's like, even my, my farm can't keep up. I can't take the time to tag 2000 individual plants just to untag them, to plant them and retag them again. And then every little tiny leaf that goes in the compost, we have to weigh. It's just insanely labor intensive and cultivating cannabis is labor intensive anyway. So it's kind of like setting us up for failure a little bit. It seemed as if Humboldt growers just couldn't get a break. As outlaws, they had suffered abuse and stigmatization. Now that they were cultivating under the law, they endured a misunderstanding and misregulation. Andalane's story of the tagging system is a clear example of what happens when the fine print doesn't really mirror reality. Tracking thousands of plants every single day wasn't just tedious and time-consuming, it was unreasonable. A clear reflection of the government's amateur knowledge of what growing weed was really like. These ineffective policies were not just harming outdoor operations, they were counterproductive to the entire goal of legalization, which is to create an open market for growing, selling, and buying weed. But why abide by the law if the law was set up against you? And it wasn't just Andalane who saw the pitfalls of California's strict regulations. Other farmers did too. In 2021, the state's $8 billion illegal market was twice the size of its legal one. Sure, being able to do business without fear of someone shooting you in the head was a huge plus, but considering all the strings attached, it's clear the system didn't get fixed. It just got rebranded. 2015 was a huge, huge year. It's when legalization happened. And I signed the first paperwork with the county where I signed my name, basically admitting that I had pre-existingly cultivated cannabis out of law. So I like put my name down, got fingerprinted and verbally admitted out in public that I was a cannabis cultivator from Humboldt County for the first time ever. And this was just something that you never talked about. Everything in my body and my bones. I mean, like I was shaking after I did it. And then I would wake up with panic attacks for like three weeks after saying it publicly. So much anxiety. But on the other positive aspect, though, that's when Dewpoint was created and when we named our business and created our brand. And then this 2015 wine trip happened where a bunch of female business owners from Humboldt County who made edibles, who cultivated cannabis, tincture businesses. Um, We went down to LA and kind of met our first shark for the first time. And when I say shark, I mean business suit with a tie, the corporate shark, you know, the dude going after the money, somebody that's basically going to stomp on us. 
He invited us down to wine country and took us out on the golf course and wined and dined us. And they kind of like campaigned it as this whole marketing education for the cannabis cultivators in Humboldt County. And then (laughs) he shows up to dinner and presents us with, this is how I'm going to help you distribute your cannabis. And I'm going to distribute cannabis all over California. And, you know, he was like the typical shark who had like misled us, you know. Did you know at that time? We all figured it out right then and there. We were like, oh, this is what you're about. What is he about? What is he trying to do? He was literally trying to distribute cannabis from Humboldt County to the rest of the world and just like basically become a dictator of of distribution for cannabis. And that was what it was. He was trying to take advantage. You know, a good example is a company coming in, interviewing a bunch of small farmers, taking their story, using that marketing content, and then not buying their product, but taking all of their IP. And that's not exactly what he was presenting, but he was trying to do like like a hostile takeover and come out on top right i mean what i could see is like now this you would have to report to this guy and this group does not seem like a group that would want to report to anyone absolutely not we are (laughs) we are outlaw farmers and we've been running our own businesses and doing our own thing for so long and you know we don't want to have to answer to anybody It's no wonder the businessman's meeting with these humble ladies ended in pointed fingers and flipped over tables. Having already been screwed over by the government, they had good reason to be cautious towards outsiders making sugar-coated promises. Yet it's important not to overlook the significance of the businessman's interests. Just a decade ago, even talking about growing weed was considered a breach of Humboldt's unspoken code. Now they were being openly approached by corporations and noticed by politicians. This wasn't simply a reflection of institutional greed. It was a gesture towards the industry's potential. There was money to be reaped here, but on what scale and by whom? That's the million dollar question that still lacked an answer. Though the days of hiding in the bushes from choppers were gone, the path towards establishing an industry that worked for everyone, including the little guys, is still in the works. When Prop 64 was first passed, there was language written in there that there would be a one acre cap until 2023. And that would prevent big corporations from coming into the industry to allow the small farmers a little bit of time to like catch up and get their feet underneath them. When the one acre cap was going to be passed, all of a sudden that language was taken out like right before it went in. And, you know, being sitting on the board of the directors for the California Growers Association, the rug was literally torn out underneath our feet. Somebody was paid off somewhere. I mean, it was a corrupt move, I believe. And that's that's my perspective. And, And the corporate players weren't supposed to come in until 2023. Okay. But they found a loophole and were able to like stack licenses so they could still have, you know, cultivate hundreds of acres. They just had to stack licenses and pay more money. It seems like with all this legislation coming in that the farmers would even be more wary of legalization because like legalization is not serving the small farmer. Is there any stories that you think symbolize that? 
that feeling of uncertainty and just wariness. There was a choice. It was like you either go legal or you stay on the traditional market. And that put a line in the sand and it divided our community. So what I saw was, you know, neighbors kind of turning on each other and and it's like this farmer's trying to go legal and the next door neighbor's not and they share, you know, the same road access. So somebody puts up a gate or I don't know if people are turning on each other and I hope not. That's against the code. You don't do that. We have a tight-knit community and it's like no matter what choice you made, it's like we're all in this together no matter what. And it feels like whatever choice you made, it's like at this point, it's still really hard. If you're legal, you are getting like death by a thousand cuts, right? There's regulation after regulation that is taxing the hell out of any profit that you'd be making. And then if you're in the traditional market, um, also, you know, some people call it the black market, you are constantly looking over your shoulder and could be shut down because you're not operating in compliance. Do you feel like that's an accurate portrayal of what is going on? And how do you think farmers can navigate it? So, I mean, the traditional market is still strong. It's still there. I think there's a big gray area and a lot of companies were kind of playing both sides and doing both. And I would say right now, a lot of our companies are facing death by a thousand cuts. There was way too much produced and not enough outlets. So it's definitely an imbalance. What are you doing to navigate that? What most businesses would do, we're laying off employees. Um, <laughs> it's, it's hard. It seems like we're kind of facing an impossible thing. So a bunch of our farmers got together and talked to the board of supervisors. And we basically were like, you have to cut taxes. We're being really unfairly taxed. And the board of supervisors listened and gave us an 85% tax reduction here in Humboldt County for next year, which is very generous and kind. Um, And it really sets a standard and makes us leaders in the industry. It's like the county and the cultivators are working together and... Yeah, and you're you're working together, but like still operating within this gray zone, you have like people that are taking advantage of that, right? You you were saying that there are some companies, or you know, actually, you know, everyone I've talked to has come into some kind of situation where they are owed money. That is happening a lot, and it's like, okay, you know, you can take legal action to try to get get paid but then the amount of money that you would spend is the amount of money that you're supposed to be paid back so 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 it's really tough yeah i have a company right now that owes me eighty thousand dollars and i can't pay my bills so i'm having to ask other companies to put me on payment plans so those companies can't pay their bills so it's kind of like a rippling effect that's happening in the industry in an industry as fractured as cannabis Solidarity is a rare sight. Yet if there's anywhere solidarity can be found, be humbled. 
a land where neighbors look out for neighbors and community comes first. Banding together to convince the county to cut taxes was a huge win for small growers. However, a bigger problem remains, the problem of supply and demand. To put it simply, the amount of cannabis the state has licensed far exceeds what the market can handle. In the last growing season, farmers produced 6 million pounds of cannabis, triple the amount that is usually consumed. Though prices have recovered somewhat since 2021, the supply chain is still in shambles. With distributors regularly returning overstock to farmers and farmers' margins so slim they can barely pay the bills, it's no wonder why small growers like Andalane are suffering. Though her situation might sound precarious, I believe there's still reason to hope. After all the community has endured, military raids, unfair policies, intense taxation, it's going to take a lot more than a rocky market to cut them down. Looking towards the future, what do you think you can do? What do you think the community can do? And what do you think maybe specifically Honeydew is doing right now to navigate that future? Yeah. I mean, to navigate the future, we need to change the way people see sun-grown cannabis. And trying to do outreach to the consumers and tell them why sun-grown cannabis is higher quality than, than indoor and educate the consumer on knowing the farmer and knowing where the cannabis came from. So you're second generation yes. farmer. What do you hope for the third generation of growers in Humboldt? Part of going legal was, was for my children and to create a business that could be passed down and um, trying to look at it from a generational mindset and, and passing on those core values. What Honeydew can do collectively as a community is work on doing studies and seeing what an Appalachian program would look like here and within the counties, that, which, which they call the Emerald Triangle, which we're known for worldwide of producing the highest quality, best cannabis in the world. And with Dewpoint, right, you are creating a brand around your cannabis cultivation. Can you tell me why exactly you're doing that? I felt that I have a story to tell. I also wanted to incorporate my core values in my brand and be able to tell my story. And I also foresaw that the prices of, of wholesale cannabis would go down and that I would possibly need a brand to funnel my quality product into. Currently, my brand hasn't grown enough to sustain and support my business, but I'm hoping that it will. And I created my brand because I didn't necessarily want to just sell in California. I wanted to bring Dewpoint and Humboldt and our story and our core values to New York and Europe and Japan and across the world um, because we deserve that. We've been here for 40 years. Um, cultivating sun-grown cannabis, and, and it's known worldwide. It's our legacy. The people of Humboldt know that weed is unlike any other commodity in the world. It's special not just because of its effects on the mind and body, but also because of its embodiment of their shared values, of sticking by your convictions in your community no matter what. But most importantly, it's the chance to tell their stories 
to shine a spotlight on the thousands of people who have dedicated their lives to cultivating a plant that for too long has been misunderstood, marginalized, and misrepresented. For generations, weed has been the cornerstone of Humboldt's livelihood, serving as a source of income for people like Andalane and giving them a means to live off the land. But weed's legacy runs deeper than its economic value. Entire neighborhoods have been founded as a result of a few farmers daring to pursue a life they believe in. It sparked friendships and ignited love that led to the creation of families. But the effects of Humboldt weed don't just end at the county's border. For decades, it's been gradually saturating California's culture, shaping policy, and soon it'll be on the doorsteps of the other side of the world. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Renee Buchanan, Sophia Donner, Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox. Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibadat Rai, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Jonathan Wass, and Diana Marie Candazo. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.